I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Well, first of all, I want to welcome Rachel uh, Kodanis to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out. I am fascinated by you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, before we get started with all of my really in-depth questions, because I want to soak up as many answers as I can, because I think you're a rare find. But tell me your story. I mean, how did you become so passionate about helping people and individuals grieve well? So it's not just grief, it's embracing life's challenges, um, really because we all are, we can't change what happens to us, but we only, it's up to us to figure out what to do with it. And I graduated college with an information technology degree, and I was going to break that glass ceiling many years ago of a field. This was before there were, you know, personal computers and before there were cell phones and all that. I was going to break that glass ceiling. And my husband and I worked for a company, part of the telecommunications networks. And one day, healthy as can be, he walked out of work and he just dropped in the parking lot. It was arrhythmia. He missed a heartbeat, never recovered. And he left me that day with a two-year-old dog. Daughter. And while I remained in corporate America for a while and working really hard, um, having using my business background of you know just trying to be in a field that was technical, when I was so emotional about what happened, and I took my skill sets skill sets elsewhere. So you know we're not. So you use grief as tell me that again. It's not just grief. It's working through difficult times in your life. Embracing life challenges. So I actually, this is, I think would be interesting for your listeners. I try not to use the word grief, bereavement, or mourning, because those three words, they they make a timeline that it's something that you're going to get over, something you're going to get through. But those last, when there's a death, when there's a divorce, when there's any kind of loss, loss of a limb, you know, I live in Colorado, we're having terrible fires right now. All those losses, they're with you forever. So I try not to time bound your reaction to it. And I'm going to give you a quick example. My sure. daughter was two when my husband died. She's getting married this winter. I have his family very involved in it. it. You know, it doesn't go away just because he passed away 25 years ago. It's part of it forever. So that's why I like to embrace it rather than necessarily just grieving, mourning, or bereaving the loss. It's just incorporating it into your life. I love that. That makes so much sense. And not always that, you know, that logic sometimes gets interferes with emotions, but that's what I try to do. That is, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, what I, what I find fascinating about what you do and how you do it is that you've, you've evolved from a personal experience. Was, what was out there when you lost your husband? Was there a lot of things out there or did you not find things? You're like, I've, I've been through this experience. I want to help other people through hard experiences as well. Tell me a little bit about what, how did you go from losing a husband, raising a two-year-old child from that death to where you are now? So interesting. Thank you. I, 
when, when Rob died, I was just a mess for a while. I mean, I'd probably be two years before I could figure out even how to manage my daily activities. Well, I had a big job and I had um, three offices. And so I convinced my company that if I wanted to stay, if they wanted me to stay in my job, that I was taking my daughter on my business trips. And for them, it was actually a gift because, you know, my expense report was even with daycare was cheaper than some of the people that go out and do, you know, eating and all that other stuff. So that's how I started doing it. And then what really transitioned me was I wrote an article, Don't Ask, Just Do. Um, this was in the late 90s, and it was it went as viral as viral could go in those days before the internet was where it is. And, <laughs> Love it. And what the what the article was was don't please don't ask me what you could do for me. Just look around and see where I'm where it is. So in other words, somebody had to take a little deeper look into what I was going through. And so to fast forward that that article turned into a at the time they're no longer they've been bought a couple of times, but Bereavement Magazine contacted me and said you are in corporate America. Could you help us on what to do when like the whole grief in the workplace? So I wrote a program and I started um, really traveling all over presenting on that. And I think the reason why I was welcomed, not only did I have a husband that passed away and I was younger, but he out passed away at the office. So I had the death of the employee, the grieving person that returned to work. And on top of that, I had a business background rather than a clinical background. Sure. So I could go in there and talk about cost centers and I could talk about time off and bereavement leave and all those things from a more corporate perspective. So that's really what launched me getting into what I call my soft skills. I love that. Soft skills. You got a whole language going on over there. I, love I that. do. I think I that's because I'm not important. a trained yeah, I'm not a trained clinician, clinician, so I've kind of developed my own power. <laughs> hey, I, I I can I get it. I totally get it. So I mean, first of all, and I know you don't use words like bereavement, but we really suck at bereavement leave. It's like you, here's three days, uh, see you. And why are we so bad at that? So we are bad at that. And so I try to, when I go into corporations or I do HR seminars and all that stuff, what I try to do is try to coach them not to try to change their bereavement leave because they're never going to be able to do that. It's going to take too long. What I suggest for them to do is be realistic in what the needs are. There are some companies that are very rigid, that, you know, especially some of the government ones, that it's really hard to, without taking literally taking time off or FMLA or some of those kind of um, programs, you really can't get past those. But what I talk to when I go into companies um, physically right now, a little bit more on an electronic version, but when I go in there, I just suggest to them is that they need to figure out how to get the work done and not necessarily the policies that are in place. So if I have to go out, like I was given a month off, fully paid, nobody even asked me what I needed. Obviously the company worked around that. I came back after two weeks because somebody said to me that I needed a routine and they were absolutely correct. So I think that if we get off of what is given to us versus what we need and to communicate our needs, for example, go pre-COVID on me, is that you couldn't get a flight and where you need to be and bury somebody in three days. It's impossible. You're exactly right. Right. So that's why I say... If we're afraid of what our company's offering us, then it's not going to work. But if we could go in and say, I need this, this, and this, and I could tell you right now, there were a lot of my, not only my 
employees that work for me, but my coworkers that stepped up to cover it. And it feels really good when you help somebody else out. So I think all our coworkers would help us. We just have to look at it. Again, it's it's a terminology thing again, right? You're not going to change the policy, but you're going to work through it. And I know that we have that capacity to do that. You know what? And you mentioned something very important. Ask for what you need and and put it out there. You know, we people like myself, we're very, it's very hard for us to do that. Well, one is we don't know what we need, but right. when we do know, when we do know it doesn't feel right, it's not our place. Actually, I just recorded something yesterday about grief in the workplace. And I said, a lot of people that are returning to the work after a loss, they get angry with their, their management or their company because they don't think they took care of you. Well, how do they know how to take care of you if you don't tell them what you need? Because nobody knows what happens behind someone's front door. Like if you lost somebody in your life and I lost the same similar relationship in my life, how do I know whether or not you have three sisters to help you or the financial means not to work or, you know, whatever it is. If we both lose our moms and we're fighting with our siblings, that's a totally different thing. So that's why I think you have to ask. This isn't a one-stop shop of, of how to help somebody with grief. Mm. That, I think that is very important because no business can have an open-ended, hey, bereavement leave. But if you ask for what you need, I, I think people are going to show up. And I think that's very key. It's a way to be proactive, too, with your own situation, um, which I really, really like. So It makes you self-aware. It makes you truly self-aware because then you actually know okay, I can't work all day. I'm too tired. But how does your management know you're too tired unless you tell them? Exactly. Some exactly. people go to work after a loss because they just can't be home. So it, it, we're, sending, we're sending multiple messages to a manager. How do they manage that? Exactly. Some people like to be at work and some people want to be home crying or taking care of personal things. Very, very good points. Very good points. So let me ask you, in your, in your opinion, what are the pitfalls of caregiving that, that you've seen throughout your career, helping people in the workplace personally, someone in the home as well, taking care of their mother? Where, where can we, uh, great words, self be self-aware of some of these pitfalls to prevent them? So the most important person in the equation is you, the caregiver, not the patient. And I know that doesn't sound logical, but it really is. If you think about it, if you don't take care of yourself, eat, sleep, break, all that, then you, you can't be a great caregiver. And you sure as hell can't be an employee, a parent, a caregiver, and all the other roles that are thrown on you. So the first thing I want to say is the most important person is you. When I started working grief in the workplace, um, probably should have retitled it because part of it to me is anticipatory loss, which is the caregiver side of it that you might be caring for somebody that has a terminal illness, that you need to juggle all of that. Um, I just think it comes down to communication, get help when you need it. Um, don't be an expert in everything that is, that is re required of you. And when people say to you, what can you, I do to help? Have that list and don't be afraid to ask. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, you're right. I, I do think that we need to, to pause and ponder a little bit more about that, especially, you know, you just mentioned with grief in the workplaces, that's one of the books you have, what, three books? Yes. So you have, you have three books. Let's talk a little bit about each one of those and some of the kind of focus that you put, um, because they do have different focuses. 
So all of them are, thank you, and all of them have to do with what I call a current and relevant approach to your situation. And thus, I said earlier, is embracing it rather than fighting it. So my first one is grief in the workplace. It's a, a comprehensive guide to being prepared. And it's really not for the person that is hurting. It's really for coworkers, managers, and HR. So they know what to do with you when you return to work, or if there's a death of a, an employee, the work group. That one really concentrates on how to interact and how it's like more of a training guide and a checklist of just how to behave and what to do. My other, my next one is living with loss one day at a time. And it's 365, what I call lessons in loss. Um, and it's really, for me, it's an organic way of working through your loss rather than a timeline, as I said earlier, the whole grief morning. Right. And when I come up, when I talk about the living with loss is that you don't get over it. So that's why it's living with it. That's the title. And I say one day at a time because there's 365 points in there. Some days I'm really nice to my readers and I tell them they should sit on the couch and just eat bonbons and stream terrible TV. And other days I suggest to have one meal out of the house. So they have to make the plan, get up, get dressed, drive, walk, however you get there, sit across the table from somebody, come home. And as you're going home, you say, that's not so bad. I'll try it again, maybe next week or next month. If I tell you, Kimberly, that you need to come out, go out, you're going to say, stop pushing me. But if I say to you, you know, I'm going to stop by and pick you up or you make yourself plan, it's an organic way of saying, okay, I did pretty good on that. Maybe I'll try something new. So that's 365 ideas. A lot of them came from, I ran a support group for 10 years and I listened to what the attendees shared with me. And I listened to what their, what I'll call is what kept them up at night. So I kind of addressed a lot of those. I think Third I book, mean well, I think that second book I mean everyone needs that right now especially with this pandemic how do you <laughs> how do you get back out there and and you know I feel like these tips might even apply in the world we we are in right now Well thank you for pointing that out because it is actually interesting is that I did get a call from my uh, from people that my publisher and like the people that distribute the book and they said, we need more. And I said, so what's going on? I said, I, you know, I was bad about my newsletter during the beginning of the pandemic. And they said, I just think it's because we're all living with loss one day at a time. And even though a lot of it was around the death of my husband, I do a lot of different analogies. I talk about our tears and things that happen. They come in waves. Some days they go all the way out and some days they come all the way in. And some days they, you know, it's just like a wave. And so people reading that particular day say, okay, I can relate to that. I had a terrible day yesterday, but I'm doing much better today. So it validates their emotion for that particular day. Do you find that we who live in America still try to numb out um, some of our grief? And, and how do you see if we choose to, to not acknowledge it versus, you know, and avoid it, what have you seen come out? So as a non-professional, um, I can say, and more of just somebody that's been out there all the time, is that I, I think what happens is it bites you in the butt later and in a different way. Um, they, we always say that a second loss, it brings up all the emotions of a first loss. We also say that like if you lose a job, that brings up a lot of, in, of other insecurities. So I think when we have loss, whether it's death, whether it's um, you know, anything that's really a life-altering change, I think it if we don't resolve some of it ahead of time or you know from our last loss I think it accumulates and it really sets and knocks us off our feet. Mm. 
Oh, uh, yeah. And I've seen, I've seen a lot of people struggle with that, with what we've been going through, especially with COVID um, and the losses that we can't be and, and tend to not be a part of. Talk to me about that third book of yours. So this one, which was very exciting until COVID came around, um, it came out in October <laughs> and I was on a, actually it's been kind of fun because I've been doing um, book clubs and I've been doing a lot of virtual tours around it because all the conferences that I were was scheduled for, uh, most of them did go virtual. So I still been out there, but it's oh, a really nice. big difference. It's a difference of hugging somebody and signing books in the back of a room versus, you know, virtual, which you understand. It's absolutely. So the, the, la- the third book is Finding Peace, One Piece at a Time, What to Do with Yours and a Loved One's Personal Possessions. And this came out of, I have probably for, it's going to say 10 years, have been doing a program on my speaking tour of what to do with possessions when you lose somebody and or when you're downsizing, right-sizing your home. How do you sort through and what I call thin, sort, how do you resolve all this stuff and things you've collected for years and maybe not only just yours maybe it's a family member maybe it's a parent and we put it in boxes in the back of our rooms and how do, what do we do with this stuff and how do we relate to it and how do you do it in an upbeat way and so I talk in my book about keeping a connection to your loved one what you keep is what you keep that provides a story or keeps a connection I love that you know when my grandmother passed away so many years ago Right after the funeral, my mother was like, and my father was like, look, go into the granny's house and and see if there's something you would like. And I was so distraught that I, I couldn't do it. I was like, you know, she, it was so fresh that I was like, no, I, I, I just can't do that. And of course, all, you know, some of my other cousins were like, yeah, all right, sure. And about three months later, my aunt I got a package at work. I worked for hospice at the time and it was the old cookie jar that my grandmother had cookies in that no one wanted. And she goes, I remember you always saying, I hope I get the cookie jar. And I bawled like a baby. Um, now don't, now all my cousins, now it was free for anyone to grab, but everyone had words of, I wanted the cookie jar after they knew I had it, (laughs) but the things like that, I, I wasn't just, I wasn't ready. So I talk about that in my book. I talk about if you're the person that is, is, is doing the project, like let's say I'm sorting through everything. I talk about six piles. And one of the piles is that you have to, in my opinion, is that when you are sorting through and you're getting rid of things, you keep what you want, but then the next pile is really that you want for somebody else. And if you ask what I say, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, if they're young, they're not going to want it. And the reason why they're not going to want it is they don't really realize yet that they have this loss that they want a continued connection to. I can say I get it because I've been you know, speaking this language for a long time. But when you're those first three to six months, you know, even a year, you don't really realize that how much you're going to cherish the connection when the time is right. And with the cookie jar, for your example, I love when I get a chance to be with families while they're downsizing before there's a death, because you get to assign who gets what. So when it does happen, when there is a loss, you get to connect those people to the item. And it's just a fabulous thing. It is because I made, when I got that cookie jar, I made a commitment right there. I remember even thinking it, that I'm going to use this cookie jar on a daily basis. It's not going to go up on a shelf to be idolized. I, and it has my dog treats in it. 
And I love it. Yeah. Love and, it. And because, and I'm like, it even went in my RV on my tour. Still, it, it was with me, that one thing. And I never knew how important it was to have that until I, re- until I received it. It was just an amazing experience and I, how my aunt knew that. Um, but I, I, I never knew how important having something that my grandmother was. For me. It's so important. And I do, I like to bring some, some things with me when I present and I like to share just different items that have so much meaning. And then I get the emails afterwards that say, you know what, Rachel, I didn't know what to do with this. And I, I like to use the word repurpose and you repurpose the cookie jar into a dog food or dog tree jar. I like when people repurpose things and I try to give ideas and it's just been, it's been a fascinating experience for me, not only my own possessions, but I wouldn't have known this until my Till if I didn't speak on it for so long and I didn't have to sort through Rod, my, my late husband's belongings, because I wanted to know why he kept everything. I wanted to know where everything came from. I wanted to know more than I saw. It's fascinating. And I didn't think it was really sad. I thought it was upbeat and upbeat as upbeat can be. But I thought it was very invigorating being in his world and like being so connected to him. Well, you mentioned earlier your daughter was two years old. A two-year-old right. is not going to know what she wants of her father's. What was, was there something that you put aside for her? And knowing that she is getting married down the road to incorporate his family and, and still, you made a very good point that just because he died didn't mean that his family couldn't be a part of their grandchild's life. That's to, It seems nonsensical, but yet it, it's, it's hard to even imagine. Well, it is hard to imagine. And it's just so interesting that we're hitting on so many things that are happening right now, current and relevant. I sent my newsletter out yesterday and my my um, blog was about in-laws. And my specific point about it was when my husband died, my daughter was two, the only connection my mother-in-law had to her now deceased son was this little baby I had. And one of the things she said to me is, please don't take that baby away from me. And I heard her loud and clear. I wrote a blog many years ago about it when she died, but I, when I was talking about in-laws in my, my latest blog, I, I referenced that. And the real reason why I wrote about in-laws was because my daughter is getting married in December and we've been all the ways of including all the families that are involved. And my brother-in-law from my, my late husband's side, even though I'm remarried and she's got a living daddy now, so to speak, is going to be the person that's going to officiate it because we want to bring everything together. And he cried when we called, you know, because he was like, you know, here we are over 25 years later. And now that connection is just still right there. Absolutely. It's the DNA. It's the DNA. Well, you know, even Rob, I had a boyfriend, died of melanoma, and his parents are, are in my life. And even though we were never married, I absolutely know what it feels like to be a daughter-in-law. I, oh, I love it. You know, love and it. I think that's sometimes we don't need to put titles and, and strings on the thing. It is just a connection because I knew their son in a different way than they knew their son and the siblings knew their brother. It's, it's still a connection that still is loud and clear. And even they participated with the book that I've written and things like that. It was so important for them to be a part of it. Love it. So tell me, how do people find you? So um, website is probably the easiest because on there I have, um, you could get on my newsletter and of course all my social media. Um, you know, my name is a difficult one. You know, anything, any social media, my name's pretty easy to find. 
But my uh, website is rachelkadanis.com. So it's R-A-C-H-E-L-K-O-D-A-N-A-Z.com. And then most of my handles on all my, so- on my social medias are a combination of that. And I don't think there's another Rachel Kadanis out there. So <laughs> and you're still, like you said, you you're do a lot of speaking. And even though it's virtual, we're hoping to get back to face-to-face. If someone was interested in getting you involved with their workplace to learn how to be, tour, especially hospice organizations. We preach it, but we're so bad at it when it comes to our own staff, when they, when a coworker is facing a serious illness or even taking care of someone who loses someone within the hospice organization. I really would love to see you involved with more end-of-life companies because when it happens to us, all the crap we know flies out the window. Of course, of course, of course. And I, no, I agree with you. And I wrote a long, long time ago, I wrote an article about hospice workers are in a totally different place when it comes to grief in the workplace, because it's not like they're losing their co- own co-worker. It's not just that they're le- maybe losing a co-worker and or that you're coming to work, back to work after your own personal loss, but you're losing your clients. So it's a it's a triple loss, I think, for some people that are in that field, the end of life field. Well, I think you are so needed and I'm so happy to have met you and thank you for taking the time to come on this podcast. Again, check her website out. I'll hook her website right with uh, the, the post, the, the podcast post in her bio. So please, you know, this is so critical, especially in the age of a pandemic where we all know someone who's been affected and who has lost. And how do we show up? Um, Not solve the problem, but just show up. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. And thank you to the listeners for listening. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.